hey everyone it's uh it's time for another holiday chat we got jesse here who's on the line from the west coast good morning jesse merry christmas <laughs> a little early for that but uh, good morning <laughs> <laughs> so what did you want to talk about today um i've got quite a list here um okay. but uh the main thing is uh finding deals um I figured I'd start just by telling you kind of where I'm at right now and where I've, where I've been in the last few years. And you're, um, you're talking about local investing deals that I describe in my book and best local. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So for everyone listening, Jesse is looking at making loans, leases, these kinds of deals with small business people. And so what, what have you done so far? Um, I uh, did a small car deal with my dad that was kind of off the books and uh, that took about three months and I made decent interest on that. I did a loan to a small business person um, who's starting, a, they were renting uh, inflatable hot tubs and that's kind of, that's up and going now. And I did a second mortgage for a gentleman and that's, uh, that's up and going as well. So I'm collecting money on a few, few things right now, which is nice. And so let me ask you about those deals. So the, the hot tub one, how did you find that one? Uh, that was on Craigslist. So someone was I, advertising saying they were looking for an investor. Yeah. And I was super skeptical, but I met the guy. I liked the guy. I liked the idea. We met a few times until we kind of built a trust mm -hmm. and uh, we worked out a contract that I um, was happy with. It, it took a while. I think we met in the summer at some time and we didn't sign a deal until September. So it took a few months to kind of hash out a deal. Okay. And the, um, the, the, the mortgage, how'd you find that one? So I have a friend who's in leasing and, and business and he, I, we chatted uh, just when we were out, out together. And uh, I said, I was, I was starting something like this. And he said, uh, he'd kind of keep his eyes out. They do bigger deals typically, but uh, he found this one and he wanted to, to have a deal, um, do a deal with me just to kind of uh, get going. And, uh, and we, we kind of shared that one. He, we shared the administration fee and uh, okay. I collect, I collect the interest on it. So um, a mortgage people typically think of bigger numbers. So, mm -hmm. so was this like in the five figures or was it still a small deal? It was uh, thirty-five thousand. Okay, all right. And you know, with a mortgage, you need to have like a lawyer, register liens, and all that other kind of stuff. So, was it was it administratively heavy as far as transactional costs? Um, so the the borrower paid all the lawyer fees, which I thought was pretty awesome. I mean, and I, I basically my my friend did a lot of the the administration stuff, getting all the paperwork together. Uh, the, the borrower was a friend of his. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically I went to the bank and got a bank draft. I, after he, he sent me the whole package with the, with my name on the title and, and uh, on the insurance and, and all that stuff in the, the borrower's financials. And basically I went and got a bank draft and took it to the lawyers. Yeah. Okay. So a, a bit of reading, but uh, not, not very much work at all. Okay. And so you, what kinds of deals are you looking for more of? Um, I'm open to, to a lot of different stuff. If I feel like the, the interest rate is uh, kind of in line with the risk. Um, I'd like to do a lot of smaller deals rather than, you know, a few big ones. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd like to kind of get my feet wet on all of it, all the like leasing, factoring, um, loans. Um, I mean, it's all the factoring is probably the most uh, scary one just because it seems to be like the most complicated. Well, you know, in, in the world of factoring, there's actually a factoring franchise. Um, and, and the reason why they have been successful is because they have a, a training program that basically they train people on underwriting, like how to determine if it's, you know, a good business or good receivables, et cetera. And, and for those listening, factoring is when you 
make advances or buy accounts receivable from a business that doesn't want to wait to collect from the customer. But the second part of where that franchise has been successful is they've created sort of a secondary market or exchange where bigger factoring facilities can be shared amongst other franchisees. So, so people can diversify themselves by putting money into not only their deals, but into other franchisees deals. And so um, I, I, I helped someone get into that franchise, which is why I know so much about it. And, and, you know, the, that what you're talking about, about, you know, it seems complicated to get into. That's exactly why they've created an opportunity for themselves, right? Because they they're smoothing over some of that stuff. I personally, um, you know, think that that is more of an advanced thing, right? And so, doing uh, loans and leases against pieces of equipment where you can register security and and there's a clear line to what happens in the case of a Plan B, is is a lot simpler. Um, the finding the mortgage through your friend is kind of like, that's the methodology I endorse through the book is to have some kind of social connection between yourself and the person who's, who you're lending to um, with some kind of trusted middle person because it, for, for a lot of different reasons, but number one, your friend can kind of give you their opinion as to the person and what kind of character they have. But number two, um, you know, that borrower doesn't necessarily want to default on you because of the social ramifications that could fall out from being known as, you know, having betrayed the trust of the middle person kind of thing. And so like the Craigslist one you did where you met the, met the hot tub person over Craigslist. I mean, those create stress for me too. Like, cause, cause it, you know, you wonder, is it some kind of scam? Right. What can you maybe tell us what kinds of things you did to assure yourself that you were dealing with an okay person? Um, Well, we met a few, quite a few times over, like I said, a few months and we built some trust and uh, we, the, the working out of the contract took quite a while. Um, And basically um, I don't, I had a consultation with you actually about, about how to protect myself. And uh, one of your ideas was to, for me to purchase the hot tub so that they were my property. Uh, in the end, he wouldn't go for that. Um, he wanted to build a re- relationship with the hot tub manufacturer for the future. Um, but we have in the contract. So the, basically the hot tubs are a security on the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some, some things written into the, into the contract. Um but mostly it was just getting to know him. And uh, I mean, I did, I did some homework. I, I uh, became a contact of his on LinkedIn. Um, I saw his, just as some like little detective type work, I saw his personal vehicle and his address is on the, um, on his website or something. And uh, so I checked out his website and then I saw his address and I Googled his address and saw that his personal vehicle actually was at that address. So I knew that I knew where he lived. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I just, I liked him and I trusted him. So, so I kind of went with it and it wasn't a extremely large sum of money. So um, I felt more comfortable that way too. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because um what you're describing kind of reminds me of when I used to own apartments and I would meet these people who were coming to look at an apartment. And if you think about an apartment that, you know, even if it has a lower rent, like if it's a thousand dollars a month rent, for example, when they sign that lease, if it's a one year lease, you're, you're literally making a $12,000 sale. Right. And you're, you're entrusting someone with your property, which, you know, apartments are worth, you know, what, 50, 60, $80,000 each, if you kind of look at the value of a building divided by the doors sort of thing. So you're entrusting them with this valuable asset and you're making a relatively large sale. And sometimes you're doing it after meeting them once, or maybe ask them to fill out an application form, bigger landlords will do credit checks and stuff like that. But you, you are gaining the skills of kind of learning how to underwrite someone as far as doing business with them personally, 
Yeah. And it's totally new to me. So it was, it was a little scary. Yeah. What, what I've always recommended um, for people as far as finding deals is to leverage their own personal expertise. So this is where I get the example of someone who knows welding might want to get into the space of welding or leasing welding equipment, for example, because they, they know the equipment, they may even be able to start getting into acquiring used equipment that they can lease out even cheaper. Right. Or, and, and if they have to take something back, they're very familiar with the, the items and they're very familiar with who might want them and, and they have a higher likelihood of placing the items back out. That being said, I don't have a huge amount of experience with repossession because I haven't had deals go bad, right? And, and the feedback that, I mean, I put that book out in 2015, that was six years ago, or maybe, no, it was 2014, it was seven years ago. And I met a lot of people who've done those deals. And quite frankly, I have not met, been told many stories at all of people having to do the repossessions because they're being careful and they're following the methodology. What um, I would wonder is, is there any kind of domain or specific area of equipment that you have some kind of experience in or that you feel you're more knowledgeable about? Yeah, so I'm a gas fitter. Um, my expertise mainly is boilers. Okay. And I've heard of, um, just recently I was on the job and uh, there was a boiler in a container that was attached to a building. And the person mentioned that the boiler was leased. And I thought like, okay, and they didn't have any information. They were just an employee of the company, mm -hmm. but I did wonder how that would work because um, if people are doing say a boiler retrofit in a building, um, sure the boiler is a, is a huge expense, but it's maybe a 10th of the entire job, right? Like these, a boiler could be worth 30 to $50,000 for the, the really big higher end ones, but the job itself is hundreds of thousands of dollars, which I wouldn't be able to finance. Well, I actually have personal experience with uh, a company that did boiler service and repair, and they had several truck mounted boilers. Like these are older cube vans who had driven a lot of miles. And they were, so they bought these really old trucks because they, they didn't intend to drive them very much. What they did is they, they set them up with boilers in the back with the idea being that when they went to a job site to do a retrofit or an up, update of a building's boiler, they could park this thing and hook it up so that they could take the building's boiler offline for a week while they, while they did work. Right. And, and the guy actually said to me that, those boiler rental revenues represented a significant portion of the company's overall profit. Um, and so there's, there's clearly an opportunity there. My, I'm wondering if in your market, there's a connection between the people who are owning and renting, leasing those boilers and the companies doing the service work. Uh, the company I work for, we had a boiler. It was in a trailer. We yeah. had a boiler trailer for a while and I don't, uh, we don't have it anymore. I don't know if it was, um, if it had to do with money or, or what, but um, yeah, I mean, there's quite a few companies out there that do have boiler trailers um, so that they can do work year round. Basically most buildings don't want to shut off their heat and hot water in the winter time. Right. But so, so that would kind of be something interesting to, to pursue just because you would be knowledgeable about, you know, for example, you could probably maybe get your hands on a good quality used boiler that you could inspect yourself and know that it's in good condition. And then that could become, you know, one of these rental boilers, you could get into it inexpensively. Now we're talking about more of a going concern business here. If you're talking about renting a, these things out for a week at a time on different job sites, it's not really in the, in the format, uh, you know, of the sort of passive income kind of deals that we're talking about, but you would have familiarity with a lot of other different kinds of equipment and things in your experience, in your trade that might give you some insights into some different areas. Like one of the things that, that I'm thinking is that after you work on this deal with the hot tub guy for a while is you might actually want to start looking 
for opportunities to do the hot tub leasing in other cities, like not to compete with your, your client right now, but if you can see this as an opportunity and, and like, let's face it, if you were doing this kind of deal with seven different people doing the hot tub renting in mm-hmm. seven different towns, right. And one of them folded and you had to take back the, the collateral, you'd immediately know six other people who might want to take it. Right. Right. And so the, the opportunity to get it back out and getting payments flowing again would be really good for you. Right. And I'm not opposed to the small business thing. I was on board with it for a long time. And uh, I, five years ago, I had read, done your course and read your, all your books. And uh, I was more on the side of the small business, but lately I've been leaning towards the passive side. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because uh, the thought of just the checks rolling in, basically like doing all the work up front and then just cashing the checks seems really appealing. Um, and not that those deals we just talked about would have employees, but not having employees is, is uh, seems pretty nice too. I agree with you 100%. I mean, this is these are some of the reasons why I got lured into doing it and I, have, and I have deals going right now. I mean, I got a payment yesterday through Interact e-transfer. It's great. You know, you get emails with money in them. Um, right. So the, so you're looking for more deals in general. What have you experimented with advertising? It's not something I recommend, but I know some people try it. That's one of my questions for sure. I put a, an ad on um, Craigslist. I, so I uh, started a website, got a phone number, got business cards, got all set up. And then I put uh, an ad on Craigslist. And I got one person for sure. It was a lady that wanted, I think it was ten dollars or $20,000 with nothing more than a picture of her, of her uh, driver's license. And she wanted it like yesterday. I said, well, I can't. So there's no way I can do that. And uh, it was a polite conversation, but uh, yeah, it obviously wasn't going to happen. So I, there, that hasn't been too, too fruitful. I tried it once and I had similar results. I, I got calls from people, you know, who were, you know, trying to get money to solve whatever problem they had at hand. Um, it, it did lead to me doing the mini home deal that I did. And so, but that was a case where a lady said, I need money to buy this mini home. And when I was speaking with her, it worked out that the payment to me and the lot lease she would have to pay would be lower than rent in an apartment. And so that's what triggered my mind to say, hey, wait a minute, this is a way for me to, to do a deal and it improves her cash flow, which is one of the things that, that I look for in doing business deals is if it improves the cash flow of the business, it means that they're better able to afford to pay my payments. Same scenario with this lady. She was employed, but she was going to save money. And so I ended up doing the deal because it was there was collateral and all the paperwork and everything could be done in order. But I mean, I got tons of calls from you know taxi drivers who wanted loans on cabs, but they didn't want insurance. This and so there's, you know, insurance for a cab, taxi driver is very high, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because they're always on the road and, you know, the passengers and all that kind of stuff. And so a lot of them are always looking for ways to get cars without having to have the burden of that insurance, which, oh. which is just risky, right? Yeah. And so I was meeting a lot of those people and just like, no, I, I'm not going to finance a car, especially because you're driving around all day. And, you know, if, if you get into an accident, um, you know, I would end up with a, like a wrecked car and not, not have my, uh, not, not get my money back out. So I didn't do any of those, but I know that there are people who specialize in it and, you know, that they have a business model built around that. One of my concerns about registering a name and getting business cards made and putting up a website is that you are moving from sort of being an investor as an individual to having a more formal kind of business, uh, lending right. it's business. Just a sole, it's just a sole proprietorship. 
Yes, but if you are representing yourself as a lending business, then you kind of expose yourself to more of that um, legislation and regulation and stuff that covers those areas. And not to say you're going to break any laws anyway as an investor, but um, it just opens the door for crossing paths with people who would be unpleasant, like some kind of inspector or regulator from the government you know, just making inquiries and demanding information and stuff like that. So how do you get around that? Uh, like you, I, you my, my path has always been just to sort of stay quote unquote informal. Right. And so I rely entirely on my social network to find deals. So I, and not necessarily because people know that I do the deals, but people know that I've helped people get financing before. And so sometimes I'll be introduced to someone and uh, through like an accountant or a lawyer that I know, and they'll say, Hey, this person's trying to get money. Could you help them? And that intermediary might be thinking that I'm going to help them with a business plan or a proposal or cash flow forecast or something like that. But if it meets my criteria, I might just do the deal. And so again, it's coming to me through the social, my social network. It's always done just in my name, largely. I have done them through my company when there's implications for sales tax, just to deal with the input tax credits and the, the flow of, of taxes. Um, but I've only done it a couple of times. The whole idea being is that if, if I did buy some accident happened to cross paths with a regulator that I can say, look, I'm just an investor. I, I just saw this as a business opportunity. If, if you are going to get into it sort of more formally, then, then I think that um, the smart way to go would be to really choose a specific niche so that you can standardize yourself. Like if you think about um, going and renting a tool at a tool rental place, right? Like all the contracts are pre-printed forms. Everything's kind of done in advance and you just, they say sign here, right? And, and they've got everything streamlined and they're doing the same deal hundreds, you know, dozens of times every day or hundreds of times a week. And I know it's short term, but um, it becomes an operating business. I'm in the business of doing this. And I think that if you specifically said that you were in the business of doing hot tub, inflatable hot tub leasing, yeah. right? Let's think about that. It means that you could then start advertising, you know, maybe across a couple provinces and say, you know, start your own hot tub business. I'll lease you the hot tubs. You could also create a relationship with the manufacturers or their sales reps, whoever those people are. They could then start feeding you leads because it's going to result in more sales to them. Right. Okay. And now, yeah, you are in business, you know, more formally. And if you were going to do leasing, then you would want to be GST registered. So you could do the, the pass through of the taxes, right. but then you could have a standard lease contract, get a lawyer to, you know, check it over for you. And, and then you're kind of, you're in that repeatable pattern all the time it's less of an opportunity for you to make some kind of slip and find yourself offside of some rule. Like, and, 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 you know, a lot of the times, you know, what happens if you are offside of some kind of rule, you might have some kind of fine or I don't know what would happen mm -hmm. largely, but to me, the hazard isn't actually getting caught and having to pay a fine. To me, the hazard is simply being under the microscope. And, and how torturous that would be. Just ask anyone who's ever had an audit, right? right. And, and like, like that in itself is the, is the, the punishment sort of. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with the BNI? Business Networking Group? Yeah. So I, I've been to two BNI meetings and Sorry, before COVID? Yeah, but we like live breakfast meetings. Yeah. And, you know, 
I, I get the purpose of the organization is to help people network and pass leads to each other. Um, what I've what I found is that it was a very much an organization where people are looking to extract value for themselves, right? Which makes sense. I mean, they say come here to get leads, and so people do. And what I've found is that it didn't seem to me like the people in the group were really building personal friendships and relationships. And if I compare that group to something like Rotary, Kiwanis, Knights of Columbus, like Lions Club, those kinds of things, I know that people could join those clubs and form lifelong friendships and really get to know each other and respect each other. And so I was in the Kiwanis Club for 10 years. And I mean, the people that I met in that club to this day still send me business. Like, like I've got friends I still hang out with to this day that are from that period. I only left the club because when my kids were little, it just, I had to cut some things out of my life just because of the new demands that were, that were there. But the people who get together in those kinds of clubs are not getting together for personal gain or business. They're getting together because they want to contribute to their community. Right. And I've, I've listened to that in your books and I've thought I would kind of have to change my mindset that I would be getting into the group to do those things. Cause right now I would just be getting in to make leads and that that's not really right, obviously. So, well, I, I think most people who get into it are getting into it because they want to develop their network for those reasons. But the purpose of the group is for some other reason, like, Kiwanis's motto is serving the children of the world. And so every year we would do a local project and we would contribute to an international project. So, you know, uh, iodine supplements in Africa or, you know, vaccine programs in, in a developing country or something like that would be our international project. And that would be coordinated by the big international umbrella organization. But then our local projects would be like raising money and building a playground, right? And so, and it would end up with us spending two weekends with the saws and the hammers, like doing the work. And that's where the relationships are built. When you're with some guy that you maybe spent two or three times having a brief conversation with, and now the two of you are working together, trying to dig a five foot hole with a little clamshell post hole digger, you know, and you're talking about stuff and you're talking about business and you're talking about experiences and you're getting to know the person. And, and then Later, when someone says, hey, do you know an accountant? I can say, you know what? I know a really good guy who's an accountant. And you really do know him because you spent that time together. And so those are the personal connections where people are going to want to, they will vouch for you. And I, I, get, I talk a lot you know, with people who want to buy a business, for example. And they've heard somewhere that you contact centers of influence like lawyers and accountants and stuff. And you tell them, I'm looking to buy a business. Do you have a client that wants to sell? The problem with that strategy is that that accountant might be receptive to your message, but if they in turn go and tell one of their clients that you want to buy a business, there's an implied endorsement that that person is capable and knows how to do a deal and will be a good operator, et cetera. And so a lot of those people, like, like the accountant, for example, they'll actually have a hard time passing someone over to that person they just met because they honestly can't vouch for them. They don't know that person. Right. And, and this is, this is why sometimes that center of influence marketing can be very difficult. So if you, if you think, for example, a life insurance guy, right. Life insurance agent, they're in a town and they're trying to develop clients to sell life insurance to they might go to accountants and lawyers and people like that and introduce themselves, but they're going to make it part of this ongoing effort. They might talk to that lawyer a couple times a year for several years before the lawyer actually starts to become a, a source of leads because they, there has to be some kind of development of, of trust. And you know, if the lawyer starts to hear from other people that they, you know, dealt with the life insurance guy and had good results and they were very happy and stuff, then it becomes easier and easier. And, and that's all about community. So, you know, in, I mean, I live in a city of just over a hundred thousand. So there's 
like a lot of those accountants, the lawyers, like they all know each other, right? It's a pretty small club. And so someone is trying to infiltrate that club and become part of that community, they can, it's just going to take some effort and they're going to have to spend that time. Um, and so this is why people trying to buy a business will have a hard time because they just make a one-off effort and they don't get any results. And then they think that, you know, there's not any, you know, they, they think that they've failed or that there's nothing for sale in reality that the center of influence isn't willing to, to, you know, give them a lead. And this is why the networking effort has to legitimately be part of an effort to create friendships. And, you know, I remember when I was in the club, we would get these new members and they would be people that were in Kiwanis clubs in other towns and they moved for work and they arrived here in town. And the first thing they did was they went and joined the local club because they knew immediately that they'd end up with some friends. And this is, this is where they would be, have an opportunity to create those friendships. And so, sorry, is there a, like a religious affiliation with Kiwanis club? um, Not with Kiwanis. Some, some of the clubs will say grace, like if they're at a lunch meeting, but Mm -hmm. um, I know Knights of Columbus, I believe are uh, Catholic associated, but so there's different groups and they've got different flavors here where I live. The Lions club is more blue collar Uh, auto mechanics, welders, that kind of thing. The Rotary Club is more white collar, professional type people. In in my town, Kiwanis was a lunchtime club and it was more professional people. But half an hour away, there's another town with a Kiwanis club, which is more blue collar people. And so when when you're looking for a club to join, you can shop them. They're all looking for members. And if you contact them and say, I'm in, I may be interested in joining, I'd like to come to one of your meetings, they will all invite you to come to one of their meetings. And they'll probably buy you lunch or breakfast, depending on what time of day they meet. And so the challenge for you will be finding a club where you can attend the meetings regularly. And there, it's usually a breakfast meeting or a lunch meeting. Some clubs meet in the evenings. So I know here where I live, there's a progress club. They meet like every second week on a weekday night in the evening. And that's so you have to find a club that's going to have the the meeting time that you can go to. And then when you're there, you have to sort of judge the flavor of who's in the club and whether you think that they will end up being good leads for you. And then you got to honestly throw yourself into it. And, you know, there's going to be committees and stuff that they have, you know, the committee for the whatever project. And, you know, maybe some of your skills or experience can help with that. And you, you go and you volunteer on that committee and that's going to give you more time with those particular people and you, you develop your relationships. What, let me ask you this in your social time, who are you hanging out with? Um, I have a small group of really good friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them, my best friend since I was a kid is in, uh, is a developer or a, like a, a land manager type of, uh, uh, and then I've got a, a good mix of uh, professionals and uh, like tradespersons. Okay. But pretty small. I mean, I've, I'm relatively introverted. Um, I've never had a huge group of friends. Um, I just have a few like really good friends. So that's part of the problem, especially when I had young kids, my, my social circle now with, with COVID just my social circle is just like really tiny. And my, uh, my work, um, is kind of the same. I'm, I'm in boiler rooms by myself. You know, I talk to a building manager for a few minutes mm-hmm. and then I'm, I'm in the boiler room doing my, my thing by myself. So yeah, a lot of the times I end up talking with people who are trying to, to work on something, trying to buy a business, trying to work on deals like you are. They're trying to progress and move forward. And they're still hanging out with their old high school friends that maybe are not pursuing similar missions. It sounds like you've got some friends who are moving forward as well with you. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. They're, uh, they're professionals. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is critical because you know, that old saying you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Right. And so um, the, the big advantage of a club like that, like, and, and I face this too, because I'm, I'm also an introverted personality type. 
I will end up on a Friday night and the kids will go to their moms and I'll be like, all right, the weekend's here. And then I'll think, well, what am I going to do? And then I realize I haven't made any plans with any of my friends. And so then I'll, I'll text a few of my close friends and they've already got something or they have a family commitment or something. And then I'm like, oh, well, I should have planned that better. Right. Uh, that's, I'm exactly the same. Right. So, so the, the advantage of being part of a club and now that my kids are getting older, I'm actually talking myself here into rejoining is that all you have to do is put it in your calendar and go. Right. Right. And you don't have to plan it. You don't have to make arrangements. Now you brought up COVID. That's a good point. Obviously some of these organizations or schedules and things have, have altered because of this, but I would imagine people are getting back into that groove. I know here where I live to go to a restaurant, you need to show proof of vaccination, but I'm guessing a lot of these clubs have moved back to, to face-to-face meetings under the current set of rules that we have. Who knows what's going to happen in the future? Obviously things change, right. With these new variants, but um, it, it, it makes it easier I mean, this, this, there's a reason why these clubs evolved over time. Right. Yeah. It sounds like I've got a ton of questions here about other stuff, but um, sure. it sounds like it's basically just about building my network. And that I think that once that's done, you know, five years from now, if I stick with this, I don't think I'm going to have much of a problem finding deals, but it's just that it seems like the catch 22 almost where, you know, how do you get started when you don't know anybody? And yeah, it just, uh, just getting started, I think, is the problem. Yeah. But yeah. What else is on your list, Jesse? Uh, rates, interest mm. rates. Yeah. Uh, how do you like? I like I said, I've listened to your books, and you talk about fourteen point nine percent and and eleven point four percent or whatever. How do you come up with rates? Um, it's it's sales and marketing, right? It's it's what you think sounds reasonable. So there was a great book by a fellow named Lonnie Scruggs. <clears throat> he wrote a book called Deals on Wheels. And it was all about buying and selling and lending on uh, trailers in, the, in the, the South. I think it was in Georgia or someplace like that. And um, he always did his deals at 12.9% because he, it didn't end in teen. Okay. So it, it sounded more reasonable. Now, now, he wrote this book 20 years ago when interest rates in general were higher, right? Yeah. Or, or even longer than that. But um, he was also buying the homes himself and then reselling them at a higher price. So the interest on the note was just gravy to him. For him, the real benefit was the differential he made the spread in the, in the buy and sell price of the trailer home. So that's a consideration. For me, I'm, I'm doing deals where I'm comparing to credit cards. Uh, so, so I'm saying like, you know, I'll ask the question, why aren't you just putting this on your credit card? And, and they'll say, well, I don't want to carry that balance or I don't want it to report or, you know, whatever the reason is. And I'll say, well, okay, like credit cards are at, you know, 21% interest or, or higher. Um, so, you know, I'll do this for you at 17.9. Okay. Yeah, I was and so it, it sounds like a better deal, right? right. And so in, um, there's a great negotiating book called Never Split the Difference, Chris Boss. Yeah, I just finished it about a week ago. Yeah, and, and I forget the term, but he, he, there's like setting flags or markers in a negotiation. And so if you talk about credit cards, then it kind of plants a flag in someone's head of the you know, low 20% of an interest rate, right? And so now they're going to think about what you're talking about in relation to that flag. Okay. This, the same thing happens when I'm talking with people trying to buy a business. They'll say, what interest should I offer on a seller note? And I'll say, what interest rate do you see on billboards around town for mortgages? Like, do you see advertised like, like 2.7% or 3%? You take that number and you add like another percent. And so you say, well, you know, home mortgages are 3%. So I'll pay you four, right? And most sellers are going to say, well, that's not enough. But what you've done is you've planted a flag that it should somehow be related to a mortgage rate. Right. Right. And that frames the thinking of the other party. 
do you ever let the person negotiate that that rate um i i have never had anyone try to negotiate the rate mm. Be, and and usually the reason they're wanting to talk to you is is not because of rate it's usually because of some other factor either they simply can't access credit or they don't want to access credit that reports to the credit bureau, right? And if you're talking about small ticket deals, like if you're talking about deals for $3,000, $5,000, $6,000, if you sit down and figure out what is the actual um, uh, dollar difference between 17.9 and 19.9, it's not a lot of money, right? Right. And so, so that you know, usually is not what they want. What they usually want to negotiate is like how quickly you can do it, <laughs> um, what other costs might be associated with it. So, I mean, I normally will attach a, a, a lender's fee or an origination fee. Mm-hmm. So it might be 17.9% interest with a 10% deal fee for doing the paperwork and underwriting it and my time put into creating it. Well, on a $4,000 deal, that's a $400 fee. And then if you, you do the math, you know, the interest over, you know, 24 months might be, in, you know, I don't know, six or $800. Like if they, yeah. if they had options not to do that deal, they wouldn't do it. So, so they're likely not going to argue between 17.9 and 19.9 or something like that. Okay. And um, another big one, a uh, big thought on my mind right now is inflation. Mm. Um, now, in one of your, in some of your content, you talk about adjustable rate um, lending. Have, have you done that? I personally have not done one. Um, I had, when I was a business broker, I had a deal where the buyer and seller were both very educated high level people. And one was convinced interest rates were going up and the other was convinced interest rates would stay down. And so the, the seller was the one who thought interest rates were going to be going up and kept wanting to have like 12% note. And the buyer was like, that's ridiculous. And at the end of the day, I talked with the seller and I, and he revealed that inflation was his concern. And so I suggested it. I suggested, why don't we have the interest rate reset every year and we'll use some, some benchmark. So we just, we chose TD bank just because it's one of the big banks in Canada. Mm-hmm. And we just said on the anniversary date, whatever the posted TD bank prime rate is plus 300 basis points will be the interest rate for the year. Okay. And they both agreed to that. And it turns out the buyer was right. Interest rates stayed low. But, you know, if interest rates had gone up, then the, the interest amount would have gone up. And these two were sophisticated enough to be able to alter the calculation of, of what the payment should be and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, if you're using the method I suggest of using like a Google, Google sheet or something to manage the payments and stuff, then it's easy for you to do the math to have an adjustable rate too. So it's something that you could certainly try. Here's my... Here's my issue about inflation and benchmarking, though, is that there's the real inflation that's happening in the economy. Then there's a government benchmark, the CPI, but they fiddle with the things in the basket for their own purposes, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have the bank's prime rates, but the bank's prime rates are not tied to the rate of inflation. They're tied to the bond market. And so, so in a normal market scenario, if inflation is high, people are unwilling to buy low yielding bonds and that drives down the price of the bond, which effectively drives up the yield, right? Right. And that's how the normal free market mechanism is supposed to work for interest rates to adjust according to inflation and keep it under control. The situation we exist in right now, though, is that if people won't buy those low yielding bonds, the central bank will. And this is how the government fiddles with the interest rates. Mm-hmm. So 
that's the problem. Cause right now, you know, I can tell you for sure that the rotisserie chicken at my local grocery store has suffered from inflation. When I'm, when I moved into this neighborhood in 2015, those chickens were like $5.99 or $6.99 and now they're $9.99 or $10.99. Right. Yeah. Oh, like the chickens are, are suffering from price inflation, but you know, the CPI doesn't say that. And the interest rates have been low the whole time. So there's a disconnect. And so you could, I, I would say it makes more sense just to write your deals at a higher double digit inflation or interest rate than to get into the complexity of trying to make, you know, like let's, let's think about credit cards, right? Um, how often do the banks, like, like interest rates have been declining here for 20 years most Visa cards are still 21% interest. Right. They, they never came down, right? And I know many banks do have a low interest rate credit card that people specifically have to choose that doesn't have points or whatever. But, you know, as interest rates go up, I can't see the credit card companies increasing their credit card rates. I think they'll probably still stay around that same benchmark they've always been unless we get mega inflation, you know, like unless the inflation rate goes up that high, then they'll adjust. Well, yeah, then we've got bigger problems, right? Yeah. So I, I think if you can have money out earning you 19.9%, even if inflation goes up, you're, you're it's probably the, the, that deal and earning that interest rate is probably going to be the best protection. And, and like, you're not writing 10 year deals, right? No, not so short far. term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it, that was kind of another question was, um, like, how short of a, a term would you worry about about interest rates? If you did a one year deal or a two year deal, you know. But if you signed a, a in your books, you talk about four year deals, mm-hmm. where that could be, it could be an issue. Yeah, and you know, I. You, I mean, you could certainly try. You could, you could say, you know, my interest rate is the TD Bank prime rate plus fifteen points, right? Okay. Um, and and the the pushback you're going to get is people are going to say, well, what is the payment? How is the payment going to change? You you may be encouraging people to repay more quickly under that scenario, right? And s- so if, if inflation goes up and if interest rates go up and people have, you know, choose to repay your note early, well, now you're earning zero. Right. But I think you mentioned if, if there's a lender's fee, that quick repayment just increases your yield, right? It does. If you can, if you can find the deals, like if you can find more deals to put money in. If you can redeploy it, that's the key. Right. And that's something I've learned on my, the, the mortgage I did. Um, my buddy set it up and then he told me the payments and I was like, that doesn't make sense. Um, but it was interest only. And I thought, well, that's great. That's great to get a, uh, get my money out there. But at the same time, that money is now it's tied up for the next year and I can't redeploy it. Right. So it's, it's earning interest, but it would be nice to, if I was getting some of the principal back, I could put it back out there if I could find the deal. One of the, so what I don't like about interest only deals is that you're basically counting on either a liquidity event or the borrower's future ability to access credit to get your right. money back out. Cause they either have to refinance and pay you out or sell the house, right. Or the building, whatever it is. Um, and so if I was going to do an interest only deal, I would have an amortization exit clause in there of some kind. So that, you know, maybe after, you know, 15 months, if it hasn't been paid out, then it turns itself into a amortizing deal over so many months. With, and now you have a pay, principal and interest payment okay. so that there isn't a plan B for you to exit without having to um, depend upon the borrower qualifying for a loan. Okay. Interesting. 
Let's see what I got here. I think I know the answer to this one, but have you ever done an unsecured loan? I have done like three of them. And one of them was the, is the one deal that went bad on me. Mm. Yeah. The, the other two worked out okay. And I, I, I gave the example of one of them in Invest Local where it was an advance. It was a relatively small advance. It was just a couple grand. And it was because a guy with a, opened a new pizza shop and he wanted to invest in having a, he, he found a really good deal for like printing flyers or something and he needed some cash. And what I did with him, and I described this in the book, is I had him pay me with 52 post-dated checks. So weekly repayment. And I had them all dated for Monday mornings, for Mondays. And so... I knew that his busy time was the weekend and his credit card terminal and everything would clear through and the deposits would arrive by Monday morning in his bank account. And so every Monday I went and deposited that so that, you know, the likelihood of the checks clearing would be bad, would be greater. And they all cleared. And I, and I got my money back out of that deal. Um, that, you know, is for a more, I would say you want to do a bunch of deals before you get into a deal like that. And then, like I said, like the third one I did went bad and I ended up losing some money. Um, it wasn't catastrophic. I think at the end of the day, if I look at what I, the payments I did collect, I lost about five grand. So, you know, uh, far cheaper than an MBA and just as valuable, but like, <laughs> <laughs> as far as experience goes <laughs> there's no on something like that there's no recourse or is there small claims or well um i could have done any of those things but the borrower was an open book like you want to have communication you want to have full disclosure you want to have as much communication as possible and they really 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 wanted to pay me they just couldn't. They couldn't. And they had to pay their employees before me. They had to pay their rent before me. They had to pay their key suppliers before me. And the, the business uh, struggled. They had some problems. And like, really, I fully believe they didn't have the ability to pay. Mm -hmm. So what would I do? I would, I would waste more of my time and effort suing them, probably get a judgment, and then have nothing to attach the judgment to. Right. Right. So, I mean, you know, I didn't see the utility in that. It wasn't, it wasn't like they, you know, took my money and then, uh, you know, ran away or, or try just chose not to pay me because they were scoundrels or anything. Right. I'm sorry. I see. I just, I got to jump back to rates um, for yeah. your, for your uh, leverage deals. Um, do your, business partners know the rates that you're charging to the people like is all that out in the open yeah because i give them copies of the notes uh okay right so so if it's a a debt leverage deal where i'm borrowing from a partner then i'm i'm offering my note as security for their note Right. right. So they would have to have a copy of that. Okay. So I, I give them a copy. I keep the originals and everything, but I give them a photocopy of it. And so that they can see that this thing is, you know, I'll show them the original, but I like to keep the original because I need the original if I have to enforce. Right. But they see that. And so the conversations that I have with those guys is it's similar to planting the flag with, with reference points is I will, there's a, a credit union in Manitoba that offer, is right now offering 1.2% interest on savings, right? And with, you know, it's a high interest savings account. And so I'll say, look, these guys are offering 1.2% interest with no risk. Um, I, have, I have something of value that I can offer as collateral and I'll give you five times that rate. Right. So they're quite happy to collect their 10% if, if, even well, if they see that you're making 15 or whatever. Well, no, in that case, it's six. Six, okay. Yeah, but 
they didn't have to find the deal. They don't have to do any of the work. They don't have to enforce the contract. It's it's literally, I have some form of security that they know I could realize on if something went wrong. And in a worst case scenario, they'd end up with my note. So they would end up with a you know high interest note or having to realize the security. If something happened to me, like if I went crazy and stopped paying my bills or something, mm-hmm. you know, they could get that note and then they would have the better position. So they, they see that their position is very solid, yet they can earn far more interest than they can at the bank. And so that's what makes it attractive to them. Right. Okay. Um, in some of your content, you talk about a personal guarantee. Mm-hmm. So what, what is that exactly? So a lot of times when you're doing a deal with a small business, the, the note or whatever will be written in the small business's name. And, and I'm okay with that. I do want the, like, if a small business owner goes to a bank, the bank is going to make the small business owner sign personally. And if something goes wrong with the deal, the bank will want the collateral if there is any. And then if the bank sells the collateral, they send the machine to auction, for example, rarely will it ever cover the the loan balance. They will then sue the person for the difference, right? And so this exposes the business owner to greater personal liability. It's one of the things that business people, you know, there's a fantasy out there that you can avoid liability. Well, this is the one way you can is if you, if somebody borrows from me to buy a piece of machinery, I'll write the note in the business's name alone, but I will ask for the business owner to sign a personal guarantee that simply says if they're, if they default on the note that they're personally guaranteeing to deliver the collateral to me. So this is a separate document. It's a separate document. Yeah. And, and so they're not guaranteeing a deficiency. They're not putting themselves personally on the line for the debt or the amount of money. They're guaranteeing that they're going to deliver the collateral. So it, it, it gives them an out. If things, if the wheels fall off their business and things go horribly wrong, they can legitimately unwind their business with me by bringing me the collateral. And so if you think about that, the biggest hassle you could ever imagine in like trying to foreclose on a defaulted note is like getting the stuff. Right. Yeah. Like if I had to deal with a big uh, D9 cat or, you know, some huge piece of machinery, I have nowhere to put that. I like, what would I do with that? Right. Yeah. And, and how would you get it? You'd have to like, what, call a rigging company, call a float yeah. truck company, yeah. like, like all so in this case, if you were doing that deal, they the owner would call you up and say, Look, I can't afford to pay you. Where do you want me to drop this thing off? Well, you might make a few phone calls and maybe you make an arrangement with a dealer. And you say, drop it off at the dealer. And then you talk to the dealer and you say, Look, if you can try to sell this for me or whatever, right? Yeah. But all of the hassle of getting the stuff, that's what I'm trying to avoid with the personal guarantee. Okay. Hmm. In some of your content, I forget where all this stuff comes from because I've read it all, but uh, you talk about uh, brokers is like your last is how to find your, your little book, uh, how to find deals. You talk about your last kind of last resort is brokers because you don't have that personal connection. Yeah. I looked online briefly at brokers and they all look pretty big and they look like banks almost. Where would you find brokers? So there are some really big lease and loan brokers for equipment and machinery. Mm-hmm. And then there are also individuals who are, they have a relationship with a few leasing companies and, and, you know, maybe some alternative lenders. And they're out there, you know, trying to pass their business card around to, to businesses and try to do these deals, particularly in industries where that's more equipment intensive, like uh, excavation or trucking companies and stuff like this. And so if you go and you look for um, like, what were you Googling 
like you're you're in Vancouver, right? Near Vancouver, yeah. Near Vancouver. Um, just finance brokers, leasing brokers. So try a Google search like equipment lease lease broker and then put the name of your town or the name of your community. Okay. You're going to find people, their website is going to make them look like they're big and impressive and that they're a bank. Right. But it could be an individual or a small shop with a few people. Okay. Yeah. And the, another way you could do it is if you found an individual that worked at one of these big leasing companies and asked them if they had brokers that they've used in your region. Okay. So one of these big multi-billion dollar leasing companies, if they, if they have a representative in your area that you can connect with on LinkedIn and start a conversation with, then you okay. can say, Hey, you know, do you uh, ever use, ever get deals from brokers in this region? Could you, could you refer me to some, some brokers and they might, you, you might be able to find some that way too. I mean, I did this, for about a year and a half before the financial crisis in 08, that was my business. And so I was sending out letters to accountants and lawyers, just like I described, Center of Influence Marketing. I was sending them out letters talking about deals I had done and the financing I had arranged. And I had relationships with several of the big leasing companies based in Toronto. And most of the deals I was doing was actually with banks because people would come in and I would, I would say, look, I can probably get this done at the bank, but the bank doesn't pay me a commission. So you're going to have to pay me. And this is what my fee is. And then I would do up a, a lending package and I would bring them to the bank. And so, you know, how would someone have found me at that time? Anyone who, who Googled, you know, business loan or business loan broker or something in the name of the, you know, Moncton, New Brunswick, they would have found me on okay. Google. So it's, you know, today you're going to have, there was certainly more online business, more virtual stuff. More of these brokers are representing themselves as national companies. And because they really, they can do business anywhere now. There's less requirement for ink on paper signatures on contracts and documents and things like that. So what you're looking for may be on page two or three or four of the Google results. Oh, I see. Okay. So you just, you just might have to keep digging. Um, LinkedIn, if, you know, if you're looking for people in your region, which of course for a local deal, you, you want to be in your region, um, start to do searches for keywords. And in the LinkedIn search, you can select if you want first, second, third degree of connection mm -hmm. and see, you may be able to find someone that's like connect a connection of a connection in your region by setting the geographical search as well. Oh, interesting. I'm pretty new on there, but I am, I am on there. Yeah. Um, because you can set the geography for, you know, BC, and then you could um, put the term loan broker or lease broker, and then you could set it for third degree connection. And it would literally be all your, all the connections of connections of connections, three degrees out. Right. but limited to British Columbia. Okay. And, and then you could see who comes up and you would see from their titles and you would, it would also give you results if some of those words appeared in their past roles. So for example, you could find that you're, you're a close connection of someone who is currently working at a bank who might've had lease broker as a position in their last job, but you could see what the name of that firm was. Or you could reach out to that person and just say, hey, I'm looking for a loan broker in this area. Do you know of any? And they, they may reply to you and, and give you some information. Interesting. Okay, good, good. Um, I think that's about all I've got, unless you got any other uh, hot tips. <laughs> no, it's... it's um... I'm, I'm always encouraged whenever I run across someone who's read the book and has decided to go out and do some deals. And, uh, and, and for those who are listening, there are a lot of people out there who've read the book and, and are doing some deals. And, um, you know, you don't, you want to avoid losses, just you want to be safe. And that's why I recommend the things that I do, you know, the, the collateral, the connection, um, and the plan B and, 
you know, the only time I've ever lost money is when I ignored my own rules. So there you go. Yeah. I look forward to the first of the month now because I get to collect those checks out of my little book and, and stop at the bank and just drop them off. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, and, and once you get like five or six of them, then you're like, yeah, this is, this is very cool. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's life-changing, right? Yeah. And, and so, yeah. Anyway, well, Jesse, thanks for sharing with everyone today. And I know that, that uh, some people are, are now going to get excited. The, the, the book is called invest local. You can find it on Amazon and um, here you go. Proof positive that someone's able to take those ideas and, and exercise it and, and earn some, some returns. Yeah. Thank you very much, David. No problem. Happy new year, man. And uh, enjoy the holidays and uh, hopefully talk again sometime. You bet. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.